0: Hey, what's up, guys? This is Pastor Austin from Good Shepherd Church, and this is our podcast. So happy you're tuning in this week to stay caught up on what the Lord's doing in us and through us. I hope this content encourages you. I hope it challenges you, builds up your love for Jesus. Hope you enjoy the message. We love you. Amen. Good morning, church. How are we? Good. Hey, it is good to be with you all. Students, God bless you. Thank you for helping with all that stuff that's out there. Um, if you forgot to bring stuff, you can still bring it by sometime this week. We'll get it over to h for you. Um, but uh, I'm excited to jump into the message with all of us today. But before I do, I just want to acknowledge maybe not necessarily an elephant in the room, but I think something we're all aware of that's happening that I think we ought to just talk about it as a church. And that is uh, what's happening at Asbury in Kentucky. Yeah, right. So, okay, there's there's some of you that have heard about this. And if you haven't heard about it, you must not follow a bunch of pastors on Instagram, for which I can forgive you because... I think everyone that I follow is like, man, we're going to Asbury. And I'm like, man, that sounds cool. But basically the gist is this, that at Asbury University, uh, a few weeks back, several students gathered for just a routine chapel service that just didn't end. And so they lingered for a little bit after. Uh, Pretty soon, there was just so much there happening in the presence of God that they were dragging mattresses to come sleep in that chapel. They were just unwilling to leave. And what then started to happen is it started to gain momentum and popularity on things like Instagram, things like TikTok. This is happening. God is doing amazing things. I felt like I was in there for 10 minutes, but it was actually six hours kind of stuff. People who are confessing, repenting, there's salvation happening, healing that's happening. There's amazing stuff that's going on. And pretty soon after a couple of weeks of this goes by, there are, now, there are now thousands of people packing out. I mean, you can see the images online if you look it up, but it's just this room uh, that feels like it's maybe the size of ours, but it's just packed full of people. And, and not only is it full of people on the inside, but there is a mile long line of people trying to get in from the outside. And so I think just this last week that Asbury University said, hey, we're not doing this anymore for public visitors. We're going to try to facilitate this as a student body. But this, what this is, it is a hungry, hungry group of Gen Zers that are desperate for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And, they're, and it's happening. It's happening. And there's, yeah, absolutely. Come on, we can clap about it. And... We should know that the Holy Spirit doesn't just operate in Kentucky. He's, he's here as well. And so I just, I want to encourage us and remind us before we even jump into the sermon today, because all I'm talking about today, all I'm preaching on is just to get to the point at the very end of my sermon where I say, we need, we need, we need more of the Holy Spirit's power in our life. And so on the front of this, let me just say that God is showing up where he's wanted where students, where young people are hungry for him. He's coming and things are happening. And it's because there is a desperation that's in the air, right? And, and I think if we can have that same posture, if we can have that same kind of eagerness, God can do an amazing thing in us as well. I, I, just a quick conversation I had. We were doing our rally, we, a pre-service prayer rally before every Sunday service. And I was sitting there chatting with a, with a group and there's this middle schooler. He walks here every Sunday. His parents don't bring him. He, he just... It doesn't matter if it's like negative 13, like it was on Wednesday, he's finding his way over here. And he was just saying in the prayer circle, he's like, God, thank you that this morning I wanted to just stay home and play Battlefield. I just wanted to play video games. But then I prayed and you, you compelled me, you stirred me up and I found my way over to church. Listen to me, like, okay, that revival doesn't always look the exact same way, but that's just as powerful, is it not? One kid, one, one example of hunger for the Holy Spirit. And so what might he do in you? What might he do in me if we posture ourselves with desperation going, God, won't you come? Won't you come? So that's the beginning and the end of my sermon, but now for the actual sermon and the in-between. <laughs> I, I, I don't love the beach as much as I used to. I'm just going to be honest with you guys. I know it's kind of a weird transition. That's maybe one of the harder gear shifts that have ever happened in <laughs> preaching history, but it's okay. Here we are. I, uh... You know, 10, 10 years ago, I really used to go, I used to like going to the ocean, um, but I've just realized it's, it's, not, it's not really the place for me. Now, don't get me wrong. When it's minus 13 degrees outside and it's gonna snow again on Wednesday, apparently, I'm like, please Lord, somewhere warm. I, I'm, I'm ready to go. But I, listen, okay, I, I've been stung by a stingray before. And so I do have a little trauma, I think, a little PTSD, a little fear that still lives in my heart. I don't know what creatures are around me when I'm in the ocean, right? You can't see what's happening. There might be sharks right next to you. You don't know. You know, nobody knows, nobody knows, right? Like I stepped on a stingray that was right in front of me in knee deep water. Like I could have been paying more attention, but I wasn't. And so I, I, you know, I'm kind of afraid of getting in the water, but it's not just that. It's also that I just, I don't really like sand. And I think the older I get, the less tolerant of sand I become. It just gets in stuff. It gets in places you don't want it to. You can never get it all off of you when you come home from vacation. Like I just, I just really don't like sand. I don't let my kids play with Play-Doh, kinetic sand. None of that off limits at my house, right? I don't like sand. And something changed 10 years ago that really changed my mind about going to the beach, and that's that I had kids. Have you all been to the ocean with young kids? It is no longer joyful. It is terrifying <laughs> because the ocean don't care about your kids, right? And it's wild to me how, how kids who are not that stable on their legs or maybe seem like they can walk around and get around just fine, but as soon as they stand in ankle-deep water, knee-deep water, All of a sudden they start losing control of their body as the ocean is just merciless in the way that it pulls and the way that it tugs and the current that presses in on us. And I think that what, what what I'm struck by when I think of the ocean, when I think about my kids getting knocked around by waves, is I think of Paul's words in Ephesians chapter four, where he says the goal of the Christian is not to be like little children who can't hold their ground when the waves of every doctrine start coming and blowing into our life. And right now, what we have in the cultural climate that we're living in is we have a a current, an undertow, if you will, of just constant bombardment of how we are to be formed sexually. And it's not leading us to a place that we would ever describe as flourishing life for the believer. And so what I want to ask today is how is it as Christians that we are being formed around this topic that we've been talking about for the last several weeks? Because last week, if you remember how we ended, talking about the fact that we, we, we concluded clearly through Scripture, over the last couple of weeks, that all sexual activity outside of the covenant bond between a man and a woman in the marriage bed is sinful. All activity, homosexual activity, lustful, lustful activity for, for a married man who is looking at something that he shouldn't be. It is all condemned outside of that container that it was meant to belong into. That, that this good, wonderful gift given by God was meant to flourish, but only in this container of one man, one woman in the covenant bond of marriage, asking the Holy Spirit to be the third strand that would be the cord that would help us not be so easily torn apart. That's how it's designed. But I said at the end of last week, man, I think some of the problem that we've gotten ourselves into as the church is we're so quick to be critical of the speck that's in other people's eye while we're neglecting the log that's in our own eye. And my challenge last week, and I I still just feel this press, that we have to be people who are committed to a life filled of sexual integrity. If we want to be helpful, if we want to be a light, if we want to restore the church's witness in this area, then we have to be committed to our own sexual integrity first. But how? How do we do that? I wanna use Samson as a case study for what not to do this morning. I don't know about you, but like when I, when I was growing up and I was, granted, I, I didn't grow up in a Christian household. So I was learning about uh, Jesus and all things God and all things theology from, from Bob and Larry and, and the hairbrush and all the stuff happening on VeggieTales, right? Like I, I, was, I was in kids ministry learning about these Bible stories going like, oh my gosh, Jonah and the whale, can you believe this is true? And my wife's like, yes, I know that's true. I learned it when I was three. Thank you, right? But you kind of get this idyllic picture of Samson when you're younger, At least least younger in my faith, I just was like, man, this guy was awesome. So strong and so powerful. And he was just amazing and man of God. And then you read the story in Judges and you're like, are we talking about the same guy? Because he actually seems rather terrible in several places. So I want to turn to Judges this morning and look at his life. And I want to look at the sexual formation that happened around Samson. I want to see how that imports into today's world. Because I think Samson walked through some things that are similar in principle to what we walk through today. But, but you have to understand first, before we open it up and start talking about his story, that what, what is happening in the book of Judges is the, the mantra or the banner that kind of exists over the whole book is, and the people of God, Israel, did what was right in their own eyes. So God had given them commands on how to live. God had given them commands as a theocracy on how to be governed, that he was to be their king. But the people wanted a king for themselves. People wanted to do what, was, what seemed right and felt good to them. And so what happens all throughout Judges, you read about just this cyclical pattern that I think still exists in a lot of people of God today, where we have this amazing relationship with God. He saved us, he's done amazing things and we're on fire for him. But then we get complacent and we start to drift. And we start to neglect the things that he's called us to do. We start to kind of let our foot off the gas of chasing after him just a little bit. And in that complacency, sin enters in and rebellion starts to creep up into our hearts. And we start doing the things that seem right to us in our own eyes. And in that, as we drift away from God, then there's this chaos and there's this heartbreak and there's this hurt that happens all throughout the book of Judges. And it happens in our lives today when we neglect God and we walk away from him and we start to pursue our own things. There's inevitable pain. Inevitable consequences. And then God miraculously, as they cry out to him in their pain, in their anguish, they cry out, they need a savior. God delivers a man, a person to come and to be the king or, or a woman, Deborah. Hello, come on, Deborah's awesome in, in Judges. But they, they're given a king and that brings back reconciliation for a moment until the process all starts back over again. Is this not the pattern that some of us get ourselves caught into today? Right? And so with Samson, I, I wanna do a quick overlook of his story. And then I want to show us how this applies in some of our modern culture that we live in today. So in Judges 13, the story begins like this. The angel of the Lord appeared to the woman. The woman is, is Samson's mom and said to her, behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean for behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor, no razor shall come upon his head for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. God calls for this boy to take a Nazarite vow. Now the Nazarite vow, just before we jump into it any further, Nazarite vow has three, has three primary implications for Samson. The first is that he's, he's not gonna consume strong drink. He's not gonna have an alcoholic beverage. He's also, he's, he's the second thing is that he's not, going to, not gonna come into contact with anything unclean. So no dead bodies, no unclean uh, foods, anything that's been declared unclean by God, he's not going to come into contact with it. And then the third and final thing is that he's not going to have a razor touch his head. He's going to let his hair grow. He's not going to have his hair cut. That is the essence of his Nazarite vow. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. He shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. So Samson is born, Judges 13, verse 24. Samson's born. She uh, she bears a, a, a son and calls his name Samson. And the young man grew and the Lord blessed him. The Lord's hand was on this kid and the spirit of the Lord began to stir in him. The spirit of God began to stir in Samson. So we read down in the story a little bit further. This guy. This guy is Called, he's set apart by God. He's living in this distinct way. He's living almost as if uh, as a priest and a king for the nation of Israel. And it says that Samson one day he's down in this town Timnah, not Timnith, but (laughs) Timnah. Ah, sorry, that was bad. And at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. He saw a daughter of the Philistines, and he came up and told his father and mother, "I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now go and get her for me as a wife." Now, first of all, young people. This is, this is no game on Samson's end. Okay. Like he's got no game in getting a girl. He's, has, he's asking his mom to do it. Don't be like Samson that way for sure. You do your own courting. You do your own pursuit. Don't make mom and dad go get you a wife. All right. You do that work for yourself. Amen. Ladies somewhere. Okay. Also, and more significantly, Samson would have known that it was prohibited in Hebrew culture for him to marry outside of his own people. But he lets this lust creep into his heart. He lets this desire grow. He has this affection for this girl. And he says, no, that's the one I want to marry. His parents are like, Samson, can't you find somebody in our own people to marry? And he's like, no, 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 it's her, it's her. So Samson then, he, he goes down with his father and mother to Timnah and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. They came to the vineyards. Tell me, what is most likely being produced in a vineyard? Wine. What was Samson explicitly told not to drink? alcohol. You have to understand Samson's life is marked by seeing how close he can get to the line without crossing it. And if you're going to always play with fire, you're going to get burned, even in your own life today. If your question is, how far is too far? What can I do? All of those questions are missing the point. They're missing the point. God has called us to live in a certain way. Our effort should be striving to go, Holy Spirit, would you empower me to live in that certain way? But Samson, now he's coming to this place and he's going, okay, I'm in this vineyard and this lion comes towards him roaring. Hello. Then the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one one tears a young goat. I'll be honest with you. I don't even know if I could tear up a young goat. I don't even know what that looks like. (laughs) But Samson's one bad mamma jamma, isn't he? He just rips this lion up into bits. Like that. Okay, listen, I'm going to start a journal one day and it's just going to be called The Bible's Not Boring, You're Boring. And this is going to be one of the verses in it, okay? <laughs> like what? Rips up a line with his bare hands? It's because God had set him apart. God had called him and it was the spirit of God that was empowering him to do what he, was, what he was called to do. Remember that. He didn't tell his father and his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman and she was right in Samson's eyes. Again, the compromise that he's already made is he's facilitating, he's fostering this relationship with someone he shouldn't be married to in the first place. Then he goes and he spends time in a vineyard where she's at. And then what happens is some days later, he returned to take this woman and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. Notice this, he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. Sam, he he lingered for a moment. He saw that, what was the second rule of the Nazarite vow? He was not to come into anything, into contact with anything that was unclean. Well, a dead animal would have been unclean. So he sees it. What should have he done? Kept walking. But instead he lingers. He looks for a moment. He sees that there's bees. So he knows that there's honey. He goes and he says, there's a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. And he scraped it out into his hands and went on eating as he went. His life at this point is starting to be marked by compromise. Marked by compromise. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them and they ate. But he did not tell them that he'd scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. Judges 14 goes on. Judges 15 starts to happen. There's all this crazy stuff that happens with foxes and lighting things on fire. I don't have the time to explain. Read it on your own, okay? Judges 16, now we enter in Delilah. Delilah is now in the story. This is the story that you probably know, Samson and Delilah. Well, Samson starts to fall for Delilah, but Delilah is being manipulated. She's being told, hey, do this for me, for the Philistines, so that we can start to figure out what's going on with Samson because this dude's wicked strong. He's so strong, in fact, that he had killed a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of an ass. And I can say it that way because it's in the Bible. All right, so don't get mad at me. <laughs> Hello, like Samson's this crazy guy. He's going to war with the Philistines and the Philistines are getting tired of it. And so they're like, man, okay, we've seen that he's willing to compromise with women before. And so let's put Delilah in front of him because maybe she'll do it. They say, Delilah, get him to confess a secret about his strength so that we can overcome him. They say, they say, we'll give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, please tell me, where your great strength lies and how you might be bound so that one could subdue you. Now, listen to me. Why is some girlfriend asking some question like that on the first date? How crazy to me that the bedrock of this relationship is on manipulation and Samson knows it and Delilah knows it. And yet Samson keeps endeavoring in the relationship. Why? Because again, back to week one, week two, sex is powerful. Attraction is strong. It leads you to places you never wanted to go. It takes. It makes. It has a way to make you compromise something that you promised you would never compromise on. And so Samson's entertaining this relationship because he's just caught maybe in this in this just bend of lust, and, and he lies to her a couple of times. But eventually he gives in. He gives in and he tells her the secret. And what happens is, man, they overtake him, they subdue him. They end up chaining him up, locking him up to these two pillars. And then all these Philistines are above him. And and he literally prays, God, give me one last bout of strength that I might kill some more Philistines. And God grants it to him. He pushes these pillars over and the whole thing collapses on him, killing himself and killing all the other Philistines that are around him. Some hero. Or not. Or not. See, I think that the, the movements that are afoot that were present in Samson's day and the present in our day is that there's this idea that like we have to have a sexual pursuit of fundamentalism, a sexual pursuit of fundamentalism, that there's a moral vision plus willpower and that's what's going to equal holiness. So the moral vision, Samson, you're gonna be a Nazarene. You're gonna take this Nazarite vow and you're gonna be distinct. Samson, then he chooses to execute that moral vision on his own strength. Yes, the Holy Spirit empowers him at certain times, but there are times that we could never describe his behavior as being spirit-filled. Instead, he's self-focused. He's focused on what he can do. And he's trying to exert things in his own power. And we are told from fundamental movements that that's how our sexual formation should be. Here's this moral vision for sexuality. God says, don't do this. God says, this is the only way to behave. And now you you need to follow after that way of thinking. You need to do all of your effort to make sure you're obedient because the damages, if you don't, are detrimental. And there's truth in that but it misses some things, which results in moral vision plus willpower not equaling holiness, but instead moral vision plus our human willpower leads us into shame and embarrassment and sexual suppression. So here's here's my gentle critique, I guess, of the purity culture movement. I, I wanna be really generous in the way that I address this because again, back in the 90s, I was watching SpongeBob SquarePants. I wasn't paying attention to what was happening in the church, all right? And people who look back now with the luxury of time, for sure, and they look back on purity culture, they would acknowledge that, man, during the 90s and early 2000s, one of the things that was taught was they were taught uh, that the biblical message around sexuality is prevention, when really the better biblical message around sexuality is that of redemption. When you, when you base all of it around prevention, what you end up doing is you start with the no, you start with the bad. And so you're saying, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And, and the whole goal of remaining pure was just keeping your virginity until you got married. And so now it's also, it's teaching a short finish line. It's like, man, you as a sexual being, you need to be formed in a certain way so that you suppress all these desires that you have because they only belong in marriage. And then once you get married, now all of a sudden it's green light, go do whatever you want to do and it's good. But it turns out that was, that was jarring for people. That was hard for people to have that sexual desire say, no, it's bad, no, it's bad, no, it's bad. Suppress it, sign this thing, wear this ring, do this because you need to take control and make sure that you are not leading yourself into sexual sin. And it was hammered all the time, all the time, all the time to the point where people, the reason, part of the reason why it failed is because if you teach purity as simply virginity, you're, first of all, you're missing Jesus' teaching that would say that, um, that even if you look at a woman lustfully, we talked about it last week, you've committed adultery in your heart. So what does that instantly do? It instantly makes all of us failures when it comes to our sexuality. Every single person in this room brings some bit of sexual brokenness into the room with them in their own heart. We all do. And so all of a sudden, what you would have in, these, in this movement of purity culture is as soon as somebody lost their virginity, they just went off the deep end because they'd already lost the goal. When The goal should have never been just to make it to your wedding night. The goal should have been seeing your sexuality as a part of your formation to Jesus for the rest of your life. But we missed some of that somehow. Look like, again, I wasn't there. I wasn't teaching it. I know things were taught that were well. And I think like some of the best advice that I can give you parents right now is you're not gonna get every conversation with your kids right. i I've loved what Preston Sprinkle has taught for our youth group. It's that you parents need to try to have a hundred one minute conversations with your kids rather than the awkward uh, 100, one 100 minute conversation you got with your mom or dad. I remember that conversation, right? It was not fun. It was 100 minutes long. And we pretty much never talked about it again. But instead it's like, no, 100 hundred one minute conversations is the way to go. Talk to your kids, make this normal. Don't start with the fact that it's bad. Start with the fact that it's a good gift from God, because that's what the Bible teaches. Then go and teach how that God, because he made it, because it was his idea, because he created pleasure. He created all the parts. He actually has some say on how it works then. So yes, there are rules. And they, these are, these are desires that you have, but it's the wrong season to execute on those desires. And so we can still teach prevention, but it's not our primary mode of delivery in this message. Does that make sense? Because we have seen now it's created shame, embarrassment, sexual suppression. I think the other side of Samson's story is that he had complete sexual freedom, right? So you have a sexual pursuit of freedom as the next example, where Samson had a desire. He wanted a woman that he should have never been wanting, and, and she somehow consented to it. I don't know if she really consented to it. It was Bible times, it was back in the day. And, and her parents were just like, how many goats to have her or something like that, right? But anyways, there was desire, there was consent, and that is what gives him fulfillment, or so he thinks. And so we think today, at, on the heels of the sexual revolution now that's been happening since the 60s or 70s, and we have all of this, it, like the, the mantra of, of the air that we're living in is if it feels good, do it. Sex is just some appetite in the same way that if you're hungry, you should eat. If you're thirsty, you should have a drink. If you're aroused, you should have sex. If you can't have sex, you should masturbate. That's just what the world is telling us to do right now, time and time again. And and what we're promised is that as long as it's consensual on the one end, then that's going to leave us most fulfilled. But what we see repeatedly time and time again is desire plus consent does not equal fulfillment. Instead, what it equals, desire and consent equals despair, loneliness, and regret. Over and over again, you study any anything that you want to read in this topic, you will see that even though we're more connected, even though we have more sexual partners than ever, even though it's easier than ever to get into a hookup, we're some of the most lonely, some of the most regret-filled, some of the most despairing people that our country has seen. Let me just give some examples on how both of these movements have let us down. Right now on the internet, about 36% of all the data that's on the internet is porn. One in four searches on Google is sexual in its nature. The average age of exposure to pornography at this point in our country is between seven and 10 years old. It's largely going to be dependent on how old your kids friends, uh, your, your, your kids have friends, however old their siblings are. That's going to dictate how soon they're exposed to pornography. Um, it's not just a male-centered issue anymore. We think of this as like, oh man, that's, that's, a, that's a struggle for men. Well, no, it's not. Pornhub reports that 30% of its users are women at this point. Speaking of Pornhub, um, I follow follow an organization called Exodus Cry on Instagram. They are committed to fighting uh, trafficking and porn use. And what they reported was in 2020, Pornhub was actually accused of having uh, minors on their website. So there was an investigation that was launched towards Pornhub. Pornhub, by the way, is the largest pornographic website on the internet. And as they pressed into this topic... And as they started to remove videos with minors, videos that displayed non-consensual intercourse happening and videos that had uh, members of human trafficking in them, once they identified those videos and removed them from their site, Pornhub eliminated 80% of their videos. You think about that. You think about just what is happening on the internet. The number one search that comes up for porn uh, when someone's searching for porn, the number one word they're using is teen, is teen it's not just a pornography issue. It's also like the hookup and, and, and hookup culture that we have with apps like Tinder and Bumble and all these different things that are going on on people's phones. There's, uh, people will estimate there are a hundred million active users on these dating websites. These dating websites lead to uh, the easiest pathway to casual sex that there has ever been. So that now, uh, as you can read some articles on this, but, but they're, they're linked to ordering, uh, having sex now is a lot more like ordering an Uber than it is about having a relationship. Let think about that. We're just taking all the effort out of it. We're just trying to make it as easy as possible just to hit it and quit it is the culture that is out there with this topic. Tinder, by the way, in 2015, crossed over its trillionth swipe. If you don't know what Tinder is, good for you. God bless you. If you do know what it is, there you go. Trillionth swipe. That, this is the culture that you and I live in. And it's not just what's happening on our phones. Uh, if you think about um, in 2015, when the Me Too movement just started to explode and there was all of this, Outing and these accusations of sexual misconduct going on. Do you know what the number one book sell in America was that year? Fifty Shades of Grey, which was mo- mostly consumed by middle aged women, where they're consistently reading stories of uh, a domineering and, and uh, objectifying man. I mean, you think about just the, the brokenness that exists in this world. So, did these two movements get us anywhere? I would say unequiv- unequivocally, no, absolutely not. They got us to an incredibly broken and hurting place incredibly broken, incredibly hurting. And so what's the, what's the path forward is the question that we have to ask. See, because Samson got to this point in his life where it says this in, in, in Judges 16, he had been so marked by compromise and he'd so given himself over at several different turns. But it said when, when he's finally being uh, told by Delilah that his accusers are coming and this time she's actually cut his hair, it says, Delilah yells at her, Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out now as I did at other times and shake myself free. But read that last line. But he didn't know that the Lord had left him. This this is the heartbreaking reality for this topic: is that the deeper you go, the farther the culture forms you, the farther you just convince yourself that these things, I'm totally free to do whatever I want to do, or I'm totally just I can do this in my own moral willpower, whatever it is that you're pursuing as soon as you get there and you start to entertain this sin and you start to give a little more, give a little more, eventually you quit hearing the voice of the Holy spirit. That's saying, come out of this, please. You quit, you quit hearing the conviction and that's a dangerous, dangerous place to be in. And so we need an alternative. We need an alternative. The alternative that I'll propose here is the sexual pursuit of formation Again, I got these equations from John Tyson in his series, um, and you can look that up online. We've linked it on our resources page. But sexual formation, if we're gonna do this well, we need a right vision plus right power, and that's gonna lead us into sexual integrity. Let me explain by what I mean by those terms. In 1 Thessalonians 4, it says it this way. Paul's writing, he's saying, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. This is the will of God for your holiness, that you abstain from sexual immorality, What this shows us is that God does have a vision for sexuality and a vision for his people to live out their sexuality. And and the right vision, like I've said, is to understand that this was first and foremost, this was God's idea. It was his idea to put desires in people, it was his idea to give us attraction. It was his idea to make this union of husband and wife. That was it was it's his market. And we have to be able to talk about this in church. Parents, you have to be able to talk about this with your kids. I have been I've been preparing this series for months. I've been knowing that we need to have conversations and I still find myself with our eight-year-old son going like, I don't know how to start this conversation with you, bro. This is going to get weird, but here we go. Because we need to talk about it. We need to cast a right vision for what this is. This was God's beautiful, good and right design and the desire that's in you. It's not bad necessarily, but it, it's, it might be the wrong season for you to act on that desire. So it's not wrong for you to feel the way that you feel. God made you to desire intimacy, but we have to make sure that intimacy falls then under God's right vision. The only time to start acting on that, the only time, like if you're starting to flirt with boundaries, if you're trying to find lines, you're doing it wrong, the right vision would say, I'm gonna pursue Jesus first. I want his vision for my life. The question of sexual formation is, God, who am I becoming right now? If I keep acting in this way, if I keep doing this thing, who, am I really, am I looking like you, Jesus? like I'm gonna look like Jesus. So I'm gonna see myself as surrendered to the will of God, surrendered surrendered to the word of God. And my vision is to go, God, I know that you're gonna be with me and you're gonna bless me even if things don't always go my way, even if I don't end up in that relationship, even if I'm never married again. But God has a vision for his people to live under. And once we see that right vision, we meditate on that right vision, we keep studying that right vision in scripture, then it's not just enough to have the right vision. Samson showed us that. He had a good vision for his life. He was called by God. He took this vow. I don't know if he signed some paper, but he took a Nazarite vow when he was a kid. But what didn't he have? He didn't have the right power. Can we put that slide up with the the equation one more time, Austin? It's right vision plus right power. Listen to me, I promise you, if you keep pursuing your own power to just have your own moral approach to this issue, you're gonna consistently fail and you're gonna be consistently filled with shame. You might be able to beat porn for a little bit on your own. You might be able to not answer that that call late at night or not go into that room after too many drinks or whatever it is, whatever it is. You might be able to do it for a little bit, but but even scripture would tell us that even all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags before God if we don't have the saving work of Jesus Christ applied to our life. So even if you're consistently doing the right thing, but you're not doing it in faith because you're saved by grace, knowing it's not your own effort, but it was him who who is empowering you all along, you're still missing it. So it's not just about right vision. We have to have right power. How, how many times when you're struggling with sexual sin or before you struggle with sexual sin, do you just go, come Holy Spirit, I need you. Oh, hey, I got to pray with a couple couples after the after first service was over. We just got to say, Holy Spirit, would you come in this, come in this situation right now? Would you just invade right now? Would you, would you fill both of them up with a power that is out of this world? You wanna know what's so encouraging about what's happening at Asbury and the revival that's pouring out in our country is that people are encountering the presence and the power of God. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to be sustained in doing the right thing. Look at this verse out of 2 Corinthians. You know this verse. It's that we're not made strong In our strengths, but instead, my grace is sufficient for you, Jesus says, and my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. You know, you want to know where your power comes from? It's from the fact that you can acknowledge someday that you don't actually have it all together. You're actually in pretty desperate need of some help. And when you turn that help to the Lord, you go, Jesus, won't you help me? Then what happens? The way that you're The way that you become pure as a Christian is not by your moral behavior. It's by the righteousness of Christ being given to you. When you come to the cross and and, and in faith, you go, Jesus, I need your righteousness on my life because I can't do it on my own. so the invitation for every single person in the room is to experience the power of the Holy Spirit so that you can, with right vision and the right power, Holy Spirit help me, you can be sustained in the right direction to live a life of sexual integrity. Simultaneous loss of virginity on your wedding night is not the goal. The goal is seeing your whole life surrender to Jesus and that includes your sexuality. So that when you make a mistake, you turn to him. When you do things well, you turn to him and you give him glory. So that your whole life is aimed at the redemptive work of Jesus. Every person in this room, I know I'm talking to people who have made mistakes, you've done things, you have images, moments, people that you can't get out of your mind. And I'm pleading that the miracle working blood of Jesus would give you the right power, would restore your right vision, that you are a chosen, beloved, adopted son, daughter of his. Nothing can take that from you. He loves you. He cares for you. And he wants to see you walk in a flourishing life. So come to him. Here's what's what's crazy about the story of Samson is that Samson, as failed and as flawed as he was, was still meant to point us to something. Notice that he began to save the people of Israel, but he didn't do it himself. You know why? Because he was a man. But he points to miraculous conception. Who does that sound like? Jesus. He took a Nazarite vow. Jesus was the Nazarene. He, he, Samson lived a life of compromise as a man. He had his values all jacked up. Jesus lived with conviction. He, he lived out the will of God for his life. He didn't, he didn't look. He didn't linger when sin was right there, when he was tempted. No, he punched the devil in the face and he kept going. And finally, when Jesus gave his life at the end of his story, it wasn't to kill everybody around him, but it was to bring everybody into life. Jesus is the greater Samson. And we come and we receive communion today. Here's what I'm reminding you of. You're in desperate need of the grace, mercy of Jesus Christ. And so am I. So am I. Before I pray, Robin had the word that she shared during worship. And that word came in first service. And then there was another word that someone shared that they felt like, um, I just kind of want to remind you of it all that sometimes in life when you're in the middle of a storm and it feels like the rain is falling and the wind is blowing and you're scared, the, the temptation is to seek shelter. But if it's the Holy Spirit, then you actually you actually want to stay right where you are because what, what he's doing in you is good. And the word that someone else gave then later was that I feel like there's somebody who's, who's stuck right there and they're trying to run from the Holy Spirit, but he's trying to wash you. He's trying to restore the identity that God has for your life. And so don't short circuit it because even though you're getting pounded with rain, there's something beautiful that's going to come in the next season. I mean, you think about it this way. Like we don't get mad at the April showers because we know they bring Mayflowers. as in things happen in seasons. And so if this has been a season that's been convicting and hard and the Holy Spirit's washing over you. I want you I want you to come up for prayer after service today because I believe that what, what God is trying to do is he's trying to harvest something beautiful in you in this next season. And so please, uh, we'll be praying for you. My wife and I'll be praying for you. There'll be prayer team down here We'd love to pray for anyone, for anything today. Just don't miss the opportunity to come and receive prayer, okay? So let's put our hands out in front of us like this and let's just pray simply. Come, Holy Spirit. Won't you come? Give us a power that's out of this world to live a life that is not of this world. Help us to follow after you wholeheartedly. Help us to be a witness in the world that we're living in. Jesus, we love you, and we need you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.